Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matter show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Are you looking for more meaning and a lighter life? Well, pivot ever so slightly this away, and you may get what you need. This is episode number 101. Howdy doodle from my noodle to yours. Thanks as always for your time and attention right now. And I have a feeling that keeping your attention will be easy with this groovy episode. I'll get into it in a moment. But first, I want to give a special thanks to our show's new patrons on Patreon. Let's give some kudos to Julie and Anthony. Sweet sassy molassie, you two, you make me happy. For a name and a voice that you may not have heard before, let's hear from somebody else for a brief second. Hey, this is Aaron. Did you know that Smart and Simple Matters is supported by listeners like you, me, and the next person you share the show with? Through Patreon.com, iTunes reviews, word of mouth, social sharing, and more. Add your support as well at joelzaslavsky.com slash support. Who else needs some love today? How about a snippet from Audrey's recent iTunes review that goes a little something like this? Joel's podcast is an essential component of the Simple Living community. His diverse guests, paired with his talent for promoting genuine, authentic conversation, makes it a must-have Even if you're just discovering Smart and Simple Matters now, I promise it will be an absolute treat to go back through past episodes. Audrey, you're so sweet. I receive that and share the credit with the rest of our tremendous community. All right, let's get into the episode itself, shall we? You know, uh, it's a small wonder that it took 101 episodes, 101, to feature a chat with my friend and champion to literally millions, Joshua Fields Milburn. We spent a fair amount of the episode chatting about the new film that he and his minimalist partner, Ryan Nicodemus, were intimately involved in bringing to life. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things along with an an inspiring team that I'm stoked to have you learn more about. It's kind of like a typical Smart and Simple Matters conversation. We didn't exactly stay in one place for too long. You will enjoy it. And you are invited to join us as we discuss how to align your short-term actions with your long-term values. What the dudes, the minimalists, the guys, what they did to get 9.57 out of a 10 aggregate rating in the documentary pre-release version how they improved it even more. I just saw the final cut last week, and goodness gracious, it was, wow, yes. Uh, Also, we talk about why a 92-year-old great-grandma brought four generations of daughters to one of their past tour stops, and why it might take only a slight pivot to have more meaning and less stuff in your life. Bang-a-gong, let's get it on. Here we go. Sometimes two is better than one. But in this case, one is absolutely better than none. My guest for this episode is Joshua Fields Milburn, minus his typical other half, Ryan Nicodemus, who's sitting out this chat due to a wicked fever. Together, though, they make up a simple living dynamo known to millions of folks as the minimalists. Perhaps you even know them from their four books, including the best-selling memoir and a personal favorite of mine, Everything That Remains. Maybe you listen to their show, The Minimalist Podcast, but after our chat today, I really hope that you'll be stoked about and we'll spread the message behind a new creation they are intimately involved in, a film called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. You can explore more at their website, theminimalist.com, and Joshua... Howdy. 
Man, I cannot live up to that intro, but thank you so much. How's it going, brother? Oh, it's fantastic, man. I am just jazzed to have you join me for a fever-free chat. Uh, who knows whether we'll catch boogie fever or other kinds of fevers, but not the kind that makes your temperature spike, at least. Yeah, I felt bad for Ryan. We had to cancel a podcast this morning and everything. He just, he, he was not, a, usually I'm the one who's getting ill because Ella is a Petri dish at, at two and a half years old, as as you are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so usually it's me coming down with some sort of cold, but he woke up with 102 fevers, so it'll be just me flying solo, but, but that's all right. I, I will try to do my best here. That is all right. And Ella is the two-and-a-half-year-old daughter of your gal, Becca. People are pretty accustomed to me talking about Clark, my two-and-a-half-year-old. So, yes, I know about that Petri dish. Well, let, actually, let's take it back. Let's take it back to when you were young. Let's start where I always start a conversation with something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person that you are today. So can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on current you? Yeah, I grew up in in Dayton, Ohio uh, to a relatively uh, poor single mother. Um, I say relative uh, to the the average sort of income, but I didn't really realize we were poor at at the time. I, I just thought that we were discontented because we didn't have a lot of money. And and so I, I grew up on welfare and food stamps and government assistance and and got to a point by the time I was 18 years old going through uh, a dysfunctional family, you know, alcohol, drugs, uh, those types of things, realizing that I didn't want to live that, that same life. And so at age 18, I was... I decided that I wanted to go out and get a, a sales job and and earn some money. In fact, my, my best friend, Ryan Nicodemus, a guy who I've known since we were fat little fifth graders, he and I came up with a formula. We were sitting at the, at the lunch table in high school, and we realized that if we could just make $50,000 a year, we would both be happy. And the reason he came up with that number is, uh, you know, bo- both of us grew up fairly poor and Ryan was working for his father in a uh, painting and wallpaper business and he noticed some of the the houses they were working in uh, that a lot of the people in the picture frames that were were on the counters and the mantles or whatever they looked happy they had these sort of yearbook smiles plastered onto their faces and he asked his dad you know dad what would it take to buy a house like this the one we're working in right now and his dad was like, "Son, if you could just make fifty thousand dollars a year, you could uh, you could buy afford a house like this." And and so that was our our template for success, happiness, etc. And so I went out and got a sales job. Age nineteen, I was earning that fifty thousand dollars, but there was a, a distinct problem. I was spending about sixty five thousand dollars, and so I <laughs> I started to experience debt for the first time, and that was interesting. I. I I realized, oh, well, I went back and talked to Ryan. Maybe we, we forgot to adjust for inflation. And so I started making 65000 but spending 80000 And it was just a vicious cycle. Um, by the time I was 27 years old, I was the youngest director in my company's 140-year history. I managed 150 re- retail stores. And by most societal measures, I was successful. But really, I was just ostensibly successful. I had accumulated the trinkets of success, uh, the six-figure salary, the big house with more bedrooms than people, the luxury cars, plural, and all the stuff to, that filled every corner of my consumer-driven lifestyle. And I was really living the American dream. And so I, I got to that point but didn't feel too fulfilled. I didn't feel very satisfied. And I always felt like satisfaction was right around the bend, right around the corner. And once I achieved the next promotion, the next purchase, the next whatever, I would eventually be happy, assuming that happiness was a destination. And then, um, well, for me, two, two things happened. My mother died and my marriage ended both in the same month. And and those two events really forced me to look around and start to take an inventory of my life. And I realized I was so focused on, on so-called success and achievement 
and the accumulation of stuff. I was very focused on that as a measurement of success. And I learned something important going back to that childhood. We weren't discontented because we were poor. We were discontented because there were a series of repeated bad decisions that were made throughout my entire upbringing. And those repeated bad decisions really meant that I had a set of values. I didn't know what the values were at the time, but my short-term actions didn't align with my long-term values in life. And and that just transferred over to my adulthood as well. And so when I started making money, the same problem was in place. My actions weren't in line with my values. And so for me, I stumbled across this thing called minimalism. And that was really the way for me to, to yes, get rid of the excess stuff and, and start to identify the important things, material things in my life. But it was more important because it allowed me to get rid of the stuff that was in the way and, and ultimately uncover what my, my values were so I could, in the long run, align my daily actions with those values. Yeah, minimalism, interesting. I think I've heard of that once or twice before. Uh, <laughs> if, if people want more, I know you've, you've done this before. You've talked on national talk shows and international programs and a lot of your backstory, which is wonderful. I mean, there's so much depth there's so much raw emotion that's in there. I got a ton of it from reading Everything That Remains, and I recommend that book to as many people as I can. So I don't want to give that short shrift, and it's too bad that we're not getting Ryan's view on his backstory a little bit as well. I don't want to jump too far to the present time. I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about something that you haven't talked about a lot yet because you haven't had a reason to, and now you absolutely do. So this documentary minimalism mm. a documentary about the important things that i know there's been two two and a half years of run-up to this point where you're just about to release it to the public yeah we started in 2013 so yeah that, that, that's about right we that was the the initial idea you know ryan and i we started the minimalists.com back in december of 2010 so just over five years ago and and throughout that process we've used a bunch of different vehicles. For me, I I always wanted to be an author. I wanted to write books. I started out writing fiction, and and that was really my passion. Ryan came to me with this idea of of starting a blog after he had embraced a minimalist lifestyle about a year after I had. And and so I didn't really know what a blog was at the time, and it it turned out to be a great vehicle to add value to other people's lives. But along the way, I've become more and more vehicle agnostic. So it wasn't just about writing books. I really enjoy writing books. That's the primary way that I prefer to communicate. But I've also realized that there are a bunch of other ways that people get value. And it was more, it's become more important to me over the last five years to find the best way to communicate with those people. So that can mean a book. It can mean a blog. It can mean social media, right? I mean, that, that's another... Oh, yeah, we... Yeah. we 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 just started that podcast and have been uh, you know fortunate enough to to be able to communicate with uh, a different segment of people there and and now we have a documentary that's coming out and it's going to just be another vehicle that allows us to to communicate now the difference with that vehicle versus the others is for the last 4 or 5 years a lot of what we've done ha- has been the the Joshua and Ryan show it has been an opportunity for us to go out and share our recipes. We're not out proselytizing. I'm not trying to convert anyone to minimalism. But it's been a way to communicate our story, to share our recipe in hopes that some people can tweeze ingredients from our different recipes because Ryan and I both have different recipes and, and, and take those ingredients and create their own recipe for simple living, their own recipe for more meaningful life. With the documentary, it was a bit different, though. We went out and we interviewed minimalists from all different walks of life, minimalist families like Leo and Eva Bobalta, and they have six kids, uh, minimalist entrepreneurs who travel the world like Colin Wright, uh, or minimalist architects and neuroscientists and economists and psychologists and uh, all, all different people, fashion designers. And, and what we learned was there are a bunch of different recipes for applying these principles for living more intentionally, living a minimalist life, for living the simple life, everything from, from tiny homes to people who live in the suburbs, uh, from atheists to pastors. And all these people, while they have different belief templates, they tend to have similar values. And, and that's what we're really focusing on. People with radically different beliefs 
getting their recipes and sharing those recipes with the world and using a you know, narrative structure of a documentary. And we were fortunate enough to have a guy named Matt Diavella, uh, who directed the film. He's done a ton of different work in the past for, for you know, large brands like Reebok and uh, Toyota and, and places like that. But this is his, his first feature-length film, and he wanted to do something you know, meaningful with his, his creativity. And Man, he he really hit it out of the park. I, I think this is the this is the most accessible thing that that we've ever created, and it takes that that scary term, that fringe term, that radical term, minimalism, and makes it accessible to the masses. I think. I love how you frame it, and I love how st- you can you can tell just how much pushback you've had, just how countercultural, <laughs> even though it's being adopted by millions of people in our country and across the world, just how much people are pushing back, and I sense that in your tone. But let's let's go back just for a moment too. But you were talking about recipes and what you put into this. But before you talked to your first person, before you had your first interview with Leo or Tammy Strobel next to her tiny house or Joshua Becker in suburban Phoenix. All these folks, and I love how you're right, this is not the Joshua and Ryan show. You've got Catalyst and Asymmetrical, Spider, the primary musical source. I think a guy named Andrew Clifford Carpenter. Is that? Yeah, right? yeah, Carpenter. Yeah, Carpenter, yeah, yeah, yeah. one of your favorite musicians I know. How yes. did the team form around the idea of doing this documentary? Oh, man. It, it, well, Ryan and I, we went on a long tour, and you know about it. You were there in the middle of it. Um, we did 100 different cities over the course of a year. So we, we decided to donate a year of our lives to getting out and sharing our, our simple living message in a different way, and it was through in-person events. They were all free events. We did 119 total events over the course of 2014, and um you know, it, it, we donated not just our time and attention, but it also cost us a lot of money to get out there and 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 do that. But what we did along the way is we we brought Matt for a large a large portion of that. So we were in our tour bus, which is Ryan's 2004 Toyota Corolla. Oh yeah, it was and, I've seen pictures. <laughs> Rocket. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, just in style. Um, and so Matt was in our back seat a lot, and he went out and and he was filming. You know, a lot of the tour. And that, that, that tends to be the, the through thread for, for the documentary, but it's just a small piece. That, that is the, the, the component that allows us to tie in everyone else's story. And so while he was out there, we, we set it up so that along the way, we'd meet up with a bunch of different minimalists. And sometimes uh, it would just fall on our lap. We were in Tucson, Arizona. We were working at the, the, book, uh, the Tucson Book Festival there. And... Um, we had a C-SPAN event. It was on uh, like a local C-SPAN thing going on. And the moderator of our talk happened to be a minimalist architect. And so afterward, I asked him, hey, man, could we interview you for this? We went to his house and he had this gorgeous house, uh, very simple and, and minimalist. And, and I, what I realized is, wow, there are these different recipes. And so along the way, I was like, it doesn't just have to be these these minimalist lifestyle people, although that's great. We want those perspectives in there. I wanted these other perspectives of people that we generally would not talk to otherwise. And, and so we just started reaching out to, to different folks and, and, uh, I mean, man, we interviewed dozens and dozens of people and certainly not all of them ended up making the film. Although we we will have, we're going to release about six hours of, of free bonus content online eventually. Yeah, so you, you're going to have a bunch of other interviews in, in there as well. But we really just wanted to to share something that we found to be meaningful. What is the documentary that I would have wanted to see six years ago, seven years ago, before I was introduced to minimalism? And I realized early on that what was appealing to me about minimalism was that it was not one size fits all. You know, the first guy who I've heard the word minimalism from in a lifestyle context was a guy named Colin Wright. And he's a good friend of mine now. I didn't know who he was at the time. Someone tweeted a video of him and he was a 24 year old entrepreneur and everything he owned fit into his backpack. And he was traveling to a new country every four months. And while that sounded really awesome and admirable, it certainly wasn't the lifestyle I wanted to lead. I, I didn't have a desire to be a, a, a peripatetic traveling writer and, and and so I said, well, that's cool. But then he said, minimalism allows me to pursue what I'm passionate about. 
And I said, oh, that, that is a, even more appealing to me. Now, for him, that passion was travel. But then I, I fell down the rabbit hole and, and found people like uh, Courtney Carver or Leo Babalta or Joshua Becker. And I realized, oh, okay, there are all of these different people who have different stories, different ingredients, but they're all using this thing called minimalism to live a more deliberate life. And we wanted to broaden that. And we wanted to show that it was possible from a bunch of different angles. So it very much grew organically. And eventually when we had uh, a very rough cut of the film. I I reached out to to a guy named uh, Andrew Kappener, uh, who is the lead singer of my my favorite band. It's a band called Parlor Hawk, and he lives out in, in um, uh, uh, California now in Orange County. And um, asked him if we we could get him to do the score for the film because I realized how important you know music has has played an important role in my life, but how important it would be uh, for for this documentary uh, as well. And so we're able to get him to do it. We have a, a Grammy nominated producer who worked with him. They actually formed a band just for, for the documentary. It's called we, they spell it V V E. Uh, you could try to Google that, but you're not going to find anything because they, <laughs> they, they just made the band for the documentary. We're going to put out a soundtrack for the, for the film as well. I mean, yeah. they did such a phenomenal job, this ethereal soundscape that is perfect for the film. That's what the show notes are for. I'll, whatever I can link to, I will link to if people want to go deeper and explore <laughs> a little bit more. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the stories that you've been sharing. So this narrative format in video, and you mentioned the rough cut and last year, so we're recording this, it's April 2016. Last mm-hmm. year, there were film festivals, there were private screenings that you had, different crowds sharing different stories. Can you give me an example or two of uh, the response in a couple of these places that have already seen it? Maybe something even that surprised you or you and Ryan thought, whoa, wait a second. I didn't know that that would resonate or uh, we might need to go a different direction here. Yeah, we, we did a bunch of film festivals and, and also some screenings. We, we sent out surveys at a lot of these as well to try to get feedback for the final theatrical version of the film. And so uh, the feedback we got, we had people... Basically, we generally would ask three questions. What did you like about the film? What didn't you like about the film? And uh, on a scale of one to ten, not how much did you like the film, but how likely would you be to recommend this to someone you care about? And the reason that, that we ask that question, I think that's the true barometer of success. You may like something, but are you really willing to share this with the people you care about? And that was the the accidental success of our website. What we found is you know, it, it didn't go viral in the sense that all of a sudden there was something with five million hits. People started sharing our essays and and then our books and, and over time that grew and grew and grew and well we may have never had anything that went truly viral in, in the traditional sense. We had this this movement that kept continued to be shared by people who were very enthusiastic. And so you know, 50 readers our first month turned into, you know, more than 5 million people last year. And what I learned is that if you create something that adds value to other people's lives, they're really eager to share that with the people they care about. And so I, that's why I wanted to ask that question. You know, how likely are you on a scale of 1 to 10? you really hoping to, that we would get above a 5 or 6 on that. And our our aggregate was a 9.57 on, on those surveys. And so we looked at that and said, oh, my God, this is this is really amazing that this many people are willing to share this. Now, let's go back, especially with those people who, who said, yeah, I'm kind of willing to share it. But let's look at the criticism in here. And, and there were a few things that, that, that came up uh, in terms of what we should go back and, and, and try to, to do a better job communicating with the film. Yeah. Like and, what? Well, uh, the two things in particular. One was we needed uh, more diversity. Diversity, uh, diversity of what? I mean, obviously, oh. diversity of thought and ideas. Are you talking about physical well, yes, diversity? I, all of the above. Ethnic I mean, diversity, I, national, national, because most of the people you talked to were North Americans. Did, or did you have any Canadians? Was it all U.S. folks? Ooh, good question. Let me see here. Were there any Canadians in the film? I don't know. Okay, uh, to, I know we. It's all right. Back <laughs> to diversity. So you said, yeah, we need so, more so, diversity. 
Yeah, we, we, we certainly did. We, we needed more more points of view, um, and whether that was ethnic diversity or especially gender diversity. Uh, I wanted to, to pull a lot more women to the to the forefront and make sure that we were uh, showing you know a, a equal perspective because you know our audience is at least fifty percent female, and you know the film was maybe thirty five percent female at the time, and okay. and and that that didn't make as much much sense. And what we ha- what we did is we went back to the archives and realized we had some interview footage, and we could supplement with some some other footage. We could also go out and, and find some some new folks. But then the other feedback we got was, uh, how, how do we how do we make these segments more coherent how do we how do we link together we have a money segment we have a fashion segment we have the environmental segment we have the housing segment how how can we make those stand out on their own but also better transition into the next segment and, and make each segment build into the other. So the version of the film that you saw was the film festival version, the, the one that you showed at Simple Rev uh, last year, and got some good feedback from that, got some other feedback from, from several other film festivals. And, and what we realized is that we have a very good film right now. People are willing to share this, and I'd be very happy putting this in theaters, but it, it's very good. What can I do? What's the extra 2% that's going to take it from very good to outstanding. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we have spent the last six, seven, eight months trying to accomplish is adding, spending an inor- inordinate amount of time on that extra 2% to make this a truly outstanding film. Because this is the only time we're going to do it. Uh, uh, you can quote me on this. You're not going to see Minimalism Part 2. <laughs> and, and and so, uh, you know, we may, we, we may do more film work in the future, but this is the one time where we really want to get out there, do a a fairly large you know, theatrical release. We're, we're calling it a limited release, but it's a different kind of limited release. You know, we when you hear limited release, you know, it usually means the film is showing in L.A. and New York or something. Yeah. But we didn't want that. We wanted to make this accessible to as many people as possible. So we we partnered with a, a company called Gather, and and decided that you know what, uh, there are 3,300 theaters across the United States, and. and towns of 25,000 or more people. And so why not give people the opportunity to bring this to their town? And so we're going to have the documentary in about 400 cities, but in most of those cities, it's one night only. And so the aim with our, with our distribution deal is we have to reserve enough tickets beforehand so that, that the, the screening tips is what it's called. So there's a, there's a critical mass in, in your city. Like so 100 the the- out of 500 seats need to be filled in order for the theater to say, okay, I'm actually going to show this. Like, for example, yeah. here in Minneapolis-St. Paul area, I was just checking earlier today, mm-hmm. we at the Riverview Theater, there's 157 people who have actually purchased a ticket, said, we want to go. And I don't know what the tipping point was, probably 100, where the Riverview Theater said, okay, we'll actually do this. We're going to show this. Uh, I'm excited. May 25th at 7.30 p.m. Central Daylight Time. You know where to find me. But there's, <laughs> there's tons of people. May is a big month for you. Uh, I know you're starting in New York City on May 1st with kind of your, your international debut. And you've had all kinds of questions about, hey, when are us non-U.S. people going to get in on the action? I'll refer Indeed. to the website and the link if they want to learn more about that. But after I leave, okay, maybe I'm not the best case scenario here, but a, a general person, your target audience for this, after they leave the theater, they watch this for the first time, what, would you, what are you hoping that they will feel after they watch this documentary? I think there are two types of people that are going to watch, watch this documentary. There's going to be our, our sort of core audience, people who, who want a way to better express the emotions that, that they've been feeling around or, or the, the just the rationale behind this this recipe this simple living lifestyle and so you're gonna have have that group and a lot of that group what we found with our tour stops they bring their friends and so it's someone who's maybe a bit skeptical but at least open-minded enough to show up and, and see see the film and so you that's the second group the open-minded people who may come in with some skepticism and and what I hope is that the people who who show up in that first group who are, you know, people who are, are familiar with the minimalism, they're familiar with maybe our website, they're going to walk away with, with 
a stronger recipe, you know, more ingredients for, for what they're trying to create because they're going to have all of these different perspectives. Yeah. Maybe they're, they're a parent. And so they see someone like Joshua Becker and his wife, Kim and, and, and their interview in the film, or, uh, maybe, maybe they see, uh, uh, someone like Colin Wright who is traveling or you have have different people for, for for different scenarios so i want them to walk away feeling good about the lifestyle that they've chosen the other group i i what i hope for them is it opens up their eyes and makes them realize that wait a minute i thought this was crazy i thought this was radical but minimalism isn't a radical lifestyle minimalism is a practical lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And that's really my, my aim with this. I think it makes it accessible in a way that you realize that, okay, I don't have to get rid of all of my stuff in order to be a minimalist. In order to live a more simple life, it's about determining how my life might be better with less. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that you two, you and Ryan, you don't have to be in all 400 cities. I know you guys like going on tour, but it's getting a little bit long in the tooth, maybe, and you've, you've really limited. We were talking about this before we started recording about how you've limited your number of stops this time around to about 15 over the course of a yeah. month, which seems pretty reasonable. I mean, I, I know you guys, you hit the road in the skies. You love giving people a good hug and connecting in person with folks about your core message. Since your physical presence isn't as necessary this time, one of the cool things that I liked about your last tour stop, which was overly ambitious, what you said, 119 events in 2014? Yeah, it was, it was uh, 10 months of the year. We were on the road. So we did eight countries. Um, and yeah, we, we gave out tens of thousands of hugs. And it was a hell of an experience. Well, I want to talk about the role in these 119 places in 2014. And I would imagine out of the 400 cities that are going to be hopefully showing this uh, in May or in the future, a lot of them are due to the success of uh, not just your stop in there and connecting and hugging people, but minimalist.org, these local communities that you, these seeds that you planted in these places that you were back in 2014. Do you have any plans to start new minimalist.org communities in the places you're going to be or maybe even strengthen some existing ones to, to figure? I, I know this isn't strategic. You guys just l- legitimately love it and you love spreading your message, especially in person. What's the role of these local communities that you've cultivated in the film and in the future? The very first time we went out on, on tour was we started back in 2011 and, you know, we were very lucky to have you know, two people show up at some events or you know, 10 was a big crowd for us. But as the crowds grew and grew over time, uh, we had people who kept asking us, you know, it's great that you're here for a day, but once you leave, I'm going to go back to my everyday life. And what's a good way to connect with similar people, open-minded people, like-minded people locally? And we never really had a good answer for that. And, and so when we went out on tour in, in 2014, we, we left behind a free meetup group in every city. And we didn't want anything from anybody. We just said, hey, we know a lot of you want to connect with each other. And the only way for you to do that right now is if you were to go around and get each other's phone numbers. That's not going to happen. So go to minimalist.org, click on your city. You can find a local meetup group here in, in you know, Minneapolis or in Austin, Texas or in you know, London, UK, wherever you are. And so we left behind 100, 100 different meetup groups in 100 different cities. And while the plan isn't to necessarily continue to expand on those, we set up a online city as well, realizing that there are functionally an infinite number of, of cities around the world who maybe can't participate because they aren't cities that we've necessarily toured in before. But it doesn't mean you can't connect with other open-minded, like-minded people online. So we set that up and uh, we've actually had a lot of people set up their own meetup groups based on that. And so you know, we, we don't have any desire to have any you know, sort of authoritarian control over that. We just wanted to provide a tool where people could you know, meet up and, and connect locally. And I've found that one of the ways to embrace this lifestyle is to have another person there who's supportive and, and also have someone there who can hold you accountable when, when you need to be held accountable. And so these groups have been a great platform for people to support each other and hold each other accountable. Yeah, they have. Well, why not? Why not? You've already created the infrastructure and you're great at facilitating connection among others. So why not 
have other people be able to go to minimalist.org and start a meetup group anywhere in the world that they are, assuming that they're motivated and resourceful enough to follow through with it. Yeah, I think they certainly can. The administrative side behind that is is pretty difficult because uh, the, the other thing is we, we get requests on it all the time. Um, and we, we while we have tested it in the past, what we found is uh, people are often excited and they confuse that excitement for passion. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, so they will they'll get to a point where it's like, yeah, I want to start a meetup group. And then and then they'll start the meetup group and they're the only person who's showing up at their meetups. And. Um, and so it's, it'd be difficult for us to continue to, you know, call that list, uh, in perpetuity. So what well, the, 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 the sort of in between step for that is, uh, well, it's twofold. One is when we go to a new city, uh, and in the future, we, we tend to leave behind meetup groups. If we have a, a tour stop in those cities and we'll certainly be, be visiting new cities in the future. And each time we do that, we'll leave behind find something for for the groups there and, and then the other side of that is where there is the online city and we literally have thousands of people who meet in the online city and then we have often have groups who sort of spur off of that and they'll start their own you know meetup.com group or, or or however they want to meet hey i'm in sri lanka oh you're in sri lanka too let's get together and then it just happens organically yeah, yep. I, I've seen these virtual cities or these virtual groups. Uh, Live Your Legend, which is another group that I love and I'm a part of, they have a virtual city as well. And it's really cool to see. I mean, in person, I feel, is where the magic happens. But mm. magic can happen in other places, and it can spark some really nifty things. So thanks. I mean, I, I struggle with that as well with my role in Simple Rev and trying to help other people around the world just locally connect around the principles of simple living. Like whether they're minimalists or tiny housers or permaculturalists or homesteaders, you know, mindfulness, all these folks just figuring out where are my people and how do I get together with them so that we can have these kinds of meaningful conversations about living with less. You and Ryan have just started having those conversations. A lot of people are calling in and leaving questions. You've got a new podcast, The Minimalist Podcast. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, with all the ways that you're connecting with people these days, you've got your podcast, this film that's coming up, books, tour stops, social media, minimalist.org. I mean, wow, wow, first of all. But <laughs> second of all, all these things in terms of what you hear, and I'm sure you're only just getting a little fraction of it, what's surprising you right now about your message to live a meaningful life with less stuff? What is surprising me? You know what? Um, I'm, I'm always surprised when we go out on the road because the people who show up aren't what I would typically expect of the people who show up demographically. Um, in Albuquerque, we had a 13-year-old boy show up. I'm like, did your father drag you out here? And his father put it in. He was like, no, he dragged me out here. He's like, yeah, I, I told my dad that maybe this minimalist message could really help him out with some of his junk in the garage. And, you know, it, that, that was eye-opening to me. Or in San Diego, we had a 92-year-old great-great-grandmother. Um, and she brought four generations of daughters with her. And and so... Uh, and, and she came up to me afterward and she said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, fi- I'm 92 years old. And I'm finally learning to simplify my life. And what I'm learning is that this message resonates with people from all walks of life. We've had CEOs and factory workers show up at the same event in Atlanta. Uh, and they're, all, they're asking effectively the same question. How do I live a meaningful life? And that question manifests differently in different people with different backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, different ages, different genders. The question will shift slightly, but the question behind the question is always, how do I live my best life, my most intentional life? How can I be deliberate with the one life I've been given? And, and that's what surprised me the most. For a while, I thought it would be you know, a lot of people who were just fed up with uh, you know, their uh, their their job and a cubicle kind of thing, and we get plenty of that. You know, believe me, I bet. But but there are people from everywhere else who are are fed up with the trajectory of of the life they've been living, and they're looking not to make a complete life change necessarily, but to make a a five, ten, fifteen degree pivot in a different direction. And so when you make that fifteen degree pivot, 
a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, you're in a totally different place than you would have been had you kept that, that same direction. Indeed. Well, th- that question, I mean, you, we can talk for hours, days, years. How do I live a meaningful life? And I know part of what you recommend is consume less and create more. And I'm always, I'm always looking to tease out the tension between some things. I mean, I'm, I'm on board with that, too, with consuming less and creating more. You two, you and Ryan, I mean, you're just creating a tremendous amount. Like I mentioned, uh, I could just pick one place that you guys are, whether that's social media or going and reading all of your archives and your blogs, and that's a ton of stuff for me to consume. And for you to help people, consumption is necessary. Like you're creating uh-huh. in a very valid and, and valuable way, and I need to consume that in order to benefit from it. Do you ever feel like all of, not just you, but me, I mean, heck, people are consuming this podcast episode right now, and you and I, we're smiling, and we're grateful for it. Like we're really appreciative of that fact, but do you ever get concerned that with all of this creation that people are going to feel, uh, I don't know, pressed, pressured? to consume more than what's valuable for them? Uh, no, but here's why. I, I, would, I would actually change the nomenclature a bit. I would say they're not consuming the podcast, they're experiencing it. And, and I would, in fact, I, we go way out of our way to encourage people to unsubscribe to our blog, to unfollow us on social media, to stop listening to the podcast if they're not getting value from it. Because the last thing I want to do is take up everyone else resources to, to just you know what boost our numbers or traffic right that, that stuff doesn't matter to me what matters to me is is how do we connect and put and and how do we put our best foot forward how do I create the best possible creation via whatever vehicle I'm using whether it's a podcast or a book or a blog uh, so that the people who are experiencing it because ultimately that's what they're doing they're not wasting their resources now the resource we think of first is money and people will create a podcast or blog or whatever. They'll say, yeah, but it's free. So I'm just going to put as much content out there as possible. Right. (laughs) Oh, the great content fallacy. Right. Right. And and it's, it is free in in the monetary sense, but it's not free in in terms of time and attention. I, I teach a writing class and one of the, the first lessons that I teach people is you are not interesting. And it's hard for us to grasp, especially people who are under age 40. We all think that we're so – everything that I think about, I went to the grocery store and bought an orange today. I have to go tweet about it. You're not, inter- you're not inherently interesting. But what is interesting, and here's the, the, the paradox, is you have the potential to be interesting. And, and uh, so tweezing out the 1% that is truly interesting, the 1% that adds value to other people, that's what you want to lead with. And so – we go way out of our way to create things that will add value to, to a large swath of, of people. And it doesn't mean it's right for everyone, but I'm going out of my way to not waste the readers, the listeners, the viewers' attention with whatever we're doing. And I think the podcast is the most recent good example for that. I think for every episode that we publish, we, we record probably two to three episodes for every episode that we put out there. And, and that sounds crazy to some people, but if I'm not really happy about the thing we've created now, I don't strive for perfection that, that, that is a recipe for disaster. You're never going to achieve perfect, but I need to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, is this the absolute best I could have done given the time and resources that I have? And if the answer is yes, then I feel good about publishing that, or I feel good about publishing the book or the blog post or whatever. But the same goes for, for blog posts. If we, if we write an essay that I'm just not really happy with, we'll put it in the archives and I'll say, you know, I'll rework that one later. There's one that we published this month that, man, I have been working on for the last two years. And eventually I, I just deleted it uh, last month and, and started over. It was called uh, Less Stuff, More Sex. Ah, and, that and, is a great <laughs> story. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it was one of my favorites, but I, I didn't, I wasn't communicating in a way that I felt was putting the best foot forward. And so I said, I had to keep putting it back on the shelf. And eventually, several years later, I said, okay, just, I've got the, the concept. I just need to delete this. I need to start over. It needs to be as con- concise and, and, and it needs to be as influential, effective 
extensive as, as possible. I gotcha. Well, I'd be interested in talking to you someday. Like I have this vision now of you and Ryan sitting down and going for an hour and a quarter on a podcast episode and then realizing question number two, four, and eight, you just totally flubbed and then saying, ah, screw it. We're just going to redo the whole thing. I'm sure there's more nuance to that. And you've got a great producer and editor, Sean, and the rest of the team that's got you backed up. We'll, we'll cover that some other day. But for right now, I, I just want to give you a, just a general thing to kind of... I, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, all within the general themes of what you and Ryan typically talk about. And again, this has been wonderful. But is there something specific that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you would like people to know? Yeah, you know, you know, if, if I were to look back and, and give advice to my... And it's easier for me to do this now. I've got the older man's contempt for his younger self. But but if I were to give my my younger self advice, uh, my my twenty five year old self, even my eighteen year old self, uh, there was a bit of advice that was given to me from a friend, and it's you can't change the people around you, you change the people around you. And I don't think I really understood that until I was about twenty nine, thirty years old, and, and realizing that I shouldn't waste all my time trying to change other people. You can't change other people. You can't you know, help someone else who doesn't want to be helped. You know, if the drowning person is flailing around, they might drown you as well. And instead, I was able to surround myself with people who are supportive, people with similar values. And the interesting part about that is over the last five, six years, I have surrounded myself with just the most amazing people. And in doing so, a lot of the people who were drowning and flailing, they all of a sudden started swimming in my direction. Yeah. And in a weird way, it did change them after that was no longer my outcome. I was no, tr- no longer trying to change the people around me. If you, if you set this standard and other people see the benefits. In fact, that was one of the cool things about minimalism early on. I never jumped up and said, look at me, I'm becoming a minimalist and you should too and you should and you should. <laughs> That's not going to help anyone. Judgments are just a mirror that reflect the insecurities of the person who's doing the judging. And, and so I was able to show people the benefits. People at work started coming up to me and saying, wow, you are less stressed. You seem so much calmer. What is going on with you? You seem so much nicer. And, and I was able to then, that opened the door to, wow, yeah, I've, I've really been simplifying my life. And, and, and once people saw the benefits, not just the how-to, but the, the why-to portion, what's the purpose of the simplifying, they're, they're much more likely to, to get on board themselves. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, if people want to explore more of your world and Ryan, they want to hear Ryan since they didn't get a piece of him this time around, where would you like folks to go online or maybe even in person to to get you guys more yeah we our main hub is always uh, theminimalists.com and you can find all our tour dates there as well and if you want to see the documentary just go to minimalismfilm.com and click on see the film like i said it's one night only in a lot of cities so you have to get your tickets in advance to uh, in many of those but they're relatively inexpensive minimal fee uh for the theater and we hope to we really hope to Everyone gets a lot of value from that documentary. That's, that is our main focus this year. Well, the good news is it's going to be doing good for decades to come. Uh, you've created something that I think is going to be timeless and that people are going to be enjoying and appreciating and acting on for a long, long time. So, yes, we hope people will take action this year. But, man, there's going to be a lot of good that comes. It's going to pay huge dividends for you guys, more importantly, uh, for our culture, for our society down the road. So thank you for allowing uh, me to surround myself with you. Thanks for also surrounding yourself with me. There's a lot of cool reciprocity that's going on here, and I'm just really grateful that we got to have this chat. Joel, you are awesome, brother. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you for everything that you do. All right. I feel feel pretty good that we got into some of the backstory of the minimalism documentary that you're not going to hear anywhere else. But what may have been a bit familiar is the increasingly common wisdom to live a more meaningful life by removing the excess, your excess, my excess, the world's excess. And boy, howdy, did Joshua ever deliver for us there. Now, as somebody who's watched the film twice now, 
once at a private screening during the Simple Rev 2015 event, and once more last week with 600 people at my local theater. This was May 2016. I can now doubly, can I triply encourage you to see this film? Quadruply? Whatever you do, I just, the narratives they wove through this documentary, they emphasized Joshua and Ryan less than the original cut that I saw. It had more of a, uh, a cultural narrative about how compulsory consumption got to be the norm and how we can shift back to this more deliberate, sustainable, bigger impact life. Bigger impact on everything except for the environment, that is. I have to say, uh, it was it was genuinely funny in a number of places. Funnier than before, there's this great part with this local NBC uh, affiliate, this morning show personality. This guy's wrapping up his interview with them. He's got this cheesiest grin. This guy says... Good luck with that, guys. He's talking about minimalism, and he has this, you two are nuts, you two are nuts, tone to it as they finish the segment, brought down the house. Uh, Soundtrack, very well done, without coming into the forefront too much and stealing some of the narrative of it. I would really love it if you would see and listen for yourself. It can be found at minimalismfilm.com slash watch. It's not... It's not just that Joshua, Ryan, and this whole team around the movie, they deserve to be supported. It's really the message of minimalism and an intentional life with less. This is something that our world needs and something that you are well-equipped to share. So you can find all the links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes at joelzeslovsky.com slash SASM101. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslovsky.com slash support. If you're not already a podcast subscriber, an email newsletter getter, or maybe you want to leave a brief iTunes review, you're going to find that. Links to all the fun stuff, joelzislavsky.com slash SASM101. I think that'll do it for now. Between now and when you next hear my voice, I say, come on over, come on over. Connect with me. I'm online on Twitter at Joel Zislowski. You can say hey via email. That's joel at joelzislowski.com. Also, Joshua and I are counting on you to share this episode and the message of simplicity and minimalism. So have at it in whatever way feels best for you. You have just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zeslowski. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.